0: Today on Talks with God, uh, I have Brian Zahn here, who is the pastor of the Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And uh, this is episode 20, and we will be talking about uh, Radical Forgiveness, which is a book that uh, uh, Pastor Brian Zahn wrote. Uh, The reason why I um, invited uh, uh, Brian on this podcast is I've been uh, we've been talking about forgiveness at church. I've I've also had some past po- podcasts talking about forgiveness, and I wanted to explore this topic a little bit more. I think forgiveness is a really important topic, but I wanted to welcome you on the podcast, uh,
1: Brian. Thank
0: you, Jeremy. Good to be with you. Uh, so Brian, uh, I want to start uh, just by asking you if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself.
1: Ah, well, I'm the pastor, as you said, of Word of Life Church here in St. Joseph, Missouri, uh, the founding pastor, and our church just celebrated its 42nd anniversary. So that means I've been doing this 42 years. Uh, our church was born out of the Jesus movement in mm-hmm. the 1970s, if anybody even knows right. what that is anymore. But that's that's where our church comes from. Uh, I've written 11 books over the past, I don't know, I guess it's uh, about 15 years or something like that. So I'm um, something of a pastor, author, Right. I speak quite a bit, you know, travel and speak and all that. So that's, you know, that's my life. Okay. okay. So, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you're a pastor. Uh, what led
0: you into ministry?
1: Mm, well, I guess my dramatic encounter with Jesus. You know, I don't have any, it's strange. I don't have any story to tell about being called to ministry. Mm-hmm. It's just when I had this dramatic encounter with Jesus as a teenager, somehow I just knew that this was going to be my life. Right. And by the time I was 17, I was leading a ministry here in Saint Joseph. That was a, it was a coffee house ministry. That's what we had during the Jesus right movement. It was kind of like a music venue called the Catacombs. And after about five years of that, uh, we kind of just recognized that we we essentially were a church. Right, we're functioning as that. So we just made the leap to meeting also on Sunday mornings and. Uh, I was the pastor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's a crazy story, right. and it's it. it but uh, yeah, I don't have any story of being called to the ministry. I just fell into it with my conversion. I, it, that's the right. Best See. I can describe it. Uh, so, can you give our listeners a
0: little bit more information about uh, the Word of Life?
1: Uh, well, you know, Church of Forty Two. We're a non-denominational church, which I generally say I don't even believe in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's just what happened, you know. It's it's just how the church came about. When, when I say we're non-denominational, I don't mean anti-denominational. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're deeply ecumenical. I just this past week was speaking at the uh, Institute for Studies in Eastern Christianity, and right. I was the the only non-orthodox uh, yeah. speaker. So we love the Orthodox Church, Roman Catholic Church, Anglican Communion, Protestant. Denominations in its many varieties, the Anabaptist tradition, evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal. So we try, I mean, we probably could be described as having, as I mentioned, Jesus movement and charismatic movement roots, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't really define us. Um, We're very respectful of the great tradition, if people have an idea what that is. Sometimes when people press me to describe what Word of Life Church is like, I say, Half jokingly, half seriously, we're kind of like rock and roll Anglican. Okay. <laughs> that, in that, in that we, you know, we follow the church calendar, revise common lectionary, right. pay attention to the church calendar, but we're still a bit rock and roll. Okay. <laughs> uh, so you wrote a book uh, called Radical Forgiveness. I think
0: it was under a different title I, one time. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. It came out, I still think of it as unconditional. Okay. It was published, I don't know what year, whatever year it was published in hardback as Unconditional, the Call of Jesus to Radical Forgiveness. And then when it came out in paperback, the publisher changed the title, Mm -hmm. which I don't like because it confuses people. Um, So so everybody out there, Unconditional in Red Hardback and Radical Forgiveness in Blue Paperback are the same book. I (laughs) see. Don't buy them both. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what led you to write this book? Hmm. That's like it was so long ago. What? What did? Uh, I think. Well, I I can answer. I can answer that question. Um. So I mentioned, you know, we became a church officially in November of 1981. And uh, by the time I was in my forties, mid forties, really, like 20 years ago, I'm 64 now. Um. I began to be somewhat disenchanted with Christianity American style. That's how I would describe it. Not not disenchanted with Jesus. Right. But I felt like the Christianity that I knew was too consumerist oriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, too thin. Too American. And so as part of my quest to understand how we could make certain corrections i began to try to zero in on what i really thought of as the epicenter of christian faith right and that led me to a deep meditation on the centrality of forgiveness in the heart of the christian gospel as both recipients mm-hmm. and those that extend forgiveness. And so that that's that was the impetus for the right.
0: book. Okay. Um so I want to dive into the book a little bit. Um I'm going to start with the Sermon on the Mount. Um we uh, at our church we went through a uh, the Sermon on the Mount from start to finish, went through a deep dive on it and it was really it? Yeah, I did exploit. a 6-month series yeah. on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and I thought it was really eye-opening. It's not something that, um, you know, before we did a deep dive, I, it was not something I really, uh, I would say, I understood as well. Um, and, and I think a lot of Christians don't really understand um, what Jesus taught in that sermon. So
1: why do you think that is the case? Why? Well, I think it's been neglected. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly in the general Protestant world of the West. There was a shift with the Protestant Reformation toward the teachings of Paul. Mm -hmm. By the way, I just want to be real clear, I'm not one of those that think that there's any tension between the teachings of Jesus and the gospel and the teachings of Paul and the epistles. There's some that do. I'm not one of those. But I do think that oftentimes when we say Paul, what we really mean are sixteenth century European interpreters of Paul, which is not exactly the same thing, and so the emphasis became on how does one get saved you know how how is right. one justified before God and and then there's a lot of Pauline theology applied to that, or at times I think misapplied to that, and the gospels became relocated to the stories of Jesus, with Jesus being primarily the factor in an atonement equation. Mm-hmm. And that even though no one would say this, Jesus was not taken seriously as a theologian in his own right. Our theology comes from Paul. You know, the story and the redemptive acts uh, are belong to Jesus, but we're not really... <laughs> listening to jesus right (laughs) and uh i will say this i mean i think you're on to something in that i know that without being terribly conscious of it when i began to make some pretty radical theological transitions in midlife i can look back now i can just show you i have i have my 3842 sermons right over there (laughs) but um yeah and that is the exact number um (laughs) That my preaching began to shift from an emphasis on the epistles into an emphasis on the gospels, mm-hmm. and the words of Jesus. So I think, I don't remember how you worded your question, but I think, I think the sermon, I think the teachings of Jesus in general, the Sermon on the Mount in particular, have just been neglected. There's all kinds of right. reasons for it, I suppose, but we could maybe debate the reasons. But that, that, that this, in fact, is the case, I think, is pretty much undebatable. Now, there's been a change. That's beginning. There's been a shift over the last 20, 30 years. But for a long time, um, that wasn't the emphasis. The emphasis was theologically how we are justified, saved, redeemed, right. not what Jesus calls us to. So I could say it another way. The emphasis was on being a Christian, as opposed to being Christian, right? Which that little article, that one letter article A, makes mm-hmm. a big difference. Is the emphasis on being a Christian or being Christian?
0: Yeah, I I was listening to a, to another sermon. And he said, you know, you hear that you are the statement Jesus Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And he said, well, that may be the case for your salvation, but that doesn't mean what he wants us to do on this earth. He, yeah. you know, there, he calls us to do a lot more. While we're here on Earth, right? You know. so we could do an entire podcast on the Sermon on the Mount, but but and even in the Sermon on the Mount, as it pertains to forgiveness itself, you know, we he talks about forgiveness in the in the Lord's Prayer. He talks about forgiveness right after the Lord's Prayer. There's a lot of pieces there, uh, but I want to discuss a critical part of the Sermon on the Mount that I, I think is central: forgiveness. And you talk about this in the book. It's in Matthew five forty three to uh, forty three to forty five, where it says. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Why do you think this command from Jesus is so central
1: to the Sermon on the Mount to help us forgive? I think it's central because forgiveness itself lies at the heart of the gospel call. And it also then is what essentially makes us a countercultural community. Mhm. Everybody has to belong. I mean, human beings are social creatures. We need belonging. You know, we can we can play it acting the role of the rebel, but all of us, you know, even if we are, you know, the the motorcycle leather clad right, motorcycle, we still want our motorcycle gang, you know. Right. And so we all have to belong, and the easiest way to define the us of our belonging is in contempt of them that are not. Right. And it's, it's just a very easy way to form social cohesion. It's demonic. Right. It's what Jesus condemns, but it's easy. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so cathartic at times. See, what we do, and we do this all unconsciously, we pool together our collective anxiety, insecurity, fear, loathing, rage, And as a group, we project it upon some vilified other. You know, it could be a political group, an Mm -hmm. ethnic group, a religious group, or whatever. And and we say they're the source of what's wrong with the world, and we vilify them, scapegoat them, blast them, blame Mm -hmm. them. And it produces, actually, a tremendous cathartic experience within the group. It feels holy. It's not holy. It's unholy. But it feels holy. And... So Jesus challenges all of it. And that's the radical side of it. You know, the radical forgiveness. Right. You know, to forgive one another our social faux pas within our own group. Okay, that's all not probably not all that hard. But to have a stance of forgiveness towards that which is truly defined within our own community as the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um this this really strikes at the heart of the radical nature of the kingdom of God that Jesus is announcing and enacting. So none of this is easy, by the
0: oh, way. Oh, right. No, I agree. <laughs> no, it <laughs> definitely is not. Uh, if if it was easy, everybody would be right. doing this. <laughs> um, so many people feel that they cannot forgive. Um, I I think there's two reasons. There's probably many reasons, but I but I think there's there's two main reasons. Uh, the first one uh, I think you talk about in the book is that they've, they they feel that forgiving declares the other person innocent. Um, how can people forgive but still hold the other person accountable?
1: Yeah, we have a terrible tendency, I think, in I'll just I'll just confine it to modern American Christianity, but it's maybe broader than that, to think of forgiveness in terms of jurisprudence as exoneration. Right. In a, in a legal court. And that's not what forgiveness is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, forgiveness is saying, I will no longer hold my offender in contempt, and I personally will not seek their harm or hold them um, in in contempt. It's not right. saying they're right. It's it's saying there are things more important than being right, and it's it's this kind of forgiveness. I think can only be accomplished by those that have profound trust in God, right to say, okay God, I the matter of justice I place in your hands God. Now, I hasten to add that within any kind of healthy culture or society, you have a police and court function. Mm-hmm. And so, we don't have to go out and seek our own vengeance. We don't have to be vigilantes. Um, so, in a criminal case, you can still forgive the offender and allow the legal process. And 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 in, if, 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 when we're talking about felonies, um, that's the way it works in our society. Right. Uh, you can. You can forgive, you should, we're called to forgive, but then the society as a whole is good, that's great. But now we're going to require that there be some form of justice enacted upon this perpetrator. Right. You know, some fine or imprisonment or something's going to happen. So, um, just to make it more personally anecdotal, I'm a pastor, I have a brother, he's a prosecutor. He's the prosecutor in North Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And those are two different roles, right? And my role is to help people find their way into forgiveness. My brother's a Christian as well, but but his professional role is to take the burden of achieving justice off of the victim. And, And so my brother as a prosecutor of criminal cases can say, you're free to forgive because I'm going to take up the cause of legal prosecution. As, 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 I don't know if I did a good job with that. But, you know, you see what I'm trying to say. Yeah, def- definitely. And, and My point is that, yeah. that forgiveness is not legal exoneration. It's right. saying, I'm not seeking my own vengeance. I place this in the hands of God. And as much as I can, I'm going to move towards not holding this other person in contempt.
0: Right. Okay. And, and so the other reason I think a lot of people have a hard time forgiving is because they think that they shouldn't forgive unless the other person has asked for that forgiveness. Um, Why do some people think
1: reconciliation is necessary? Well, it's it's two different. Forgiveness and reconciliation aren't the same thing. Right. When I forgive the one who has truly, not just in my imagination, but let's say really has harmed me and sinned against me, I recover my own story. I no longer have to play the victim. And if I'm waiting eternally for this person to acknowledge what they've done and seek uh, some, some reconciliation with me, then in one sense I'm still hostage to what they've done. Right. And, I, and I, I am doomed to play an eternal victim. When I say, I forgive you, it's severing those chains that keep me tied to victimhood. But forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness can operate unilaterally. Mm -hmm. Uh, Reconciliation is bilateral. There has to be then some sort of reciprocation, response. So so I just think that's an important distinction, that forgiveness can be unilateral, uh, but that's not necessarily always leads to reconciliation. Okay. So
0: you tell several stories of forgiveness in the book. One was about a tragedy that happened in an Amish Mm -hmm. community. Uh, Many young girls were killed, but the community forgave the murderer and even befriended his family. Why were they able to forgive? Yeah,
1: this is the the Nickel Mines uh, massacre. Well, this this doesn't happen out of a context. This is an Amish community, which belongs to the Anabaptist tradition, which um, I, I already mentioned the Anabaptists when I was rattling off a litany of various, you know, denominational traditions Anabaptist is the one that gets forgotten a lot it's mm-hmm. belongs to what we call the radical Reformation right and this they come out of the Reformation but they were radical yeah. <laughs> about it they were the radical forgiveness part and they renounce all violence mm-hmm. they're they're pacifistic meaning not passive like SS but pa, P-A- C.I. as in peace, right? Peace. They're pacifists, not not passivists. If you can understand what I'm saying there, and so they're formed in that tradition that they will not seek violent retribution. They just won't, and that this is at the heart of their faith community is is forgiveness. And I just that story. I mean, I you know I haven't visited that story for probably ten years so I don't have all the details fresh in my mind, but it's quite a remarkable story. right? Yeah. It, and you, I mean, I understand the nature of your question. How in the world could they do that? But if you, if you interview the people that are a part of that, they, they'll tell you that there was no... They didn't have to learn how to do it then. Right. They had been formed in that. And they, as a community, knew this will be our response. We will seek forgiveness. And to the extent that they immediately befriended the wife and extended family of uh, this murderer that had taken the lives of their children, you know, in, in a school massacre, and um, to them it wasn't extraordinary. To them, it was you know this is this is how we live our faith,
0: right. And I think it goes back to part of where you say the difference between being a Christian and being Christian, yeah. and and you talk about being Christ-like uh, in, in the book. You mentioned earlier about this us versus them paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that a little bit more, and and how being how being Christian, being Christ-like, uh, can help us shift that paradigm?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is it lies at the heart of how our Societies are formed. We're generally formed um, by an antagonism towards some other them. And Jesus, I think, is trying to open our eyes to the reality that there there are no them. Right. There's only us. Them is an artificial construct. Um, And it goes, you know, if you want to just Use scripture, you go back to the very beginning where you have Cain and Abel. Mm-hmm. Cain is a agriculturalist, uh, Abel is a herdsman. The anthropologists will tell you that at the dawn of civilization, there was a lot of tension right. between agriculturists who could now own land and the more nomadic herdsmen who didn't. And so disputes over land would arise. And in the story of Cain and Abel, there's a moment when Cain is warned. God, in fact, says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desirous for you, but you must master it. Right. Well, he doesn't. And in a field, because I think that's probably what the dispute was over, in a field we're told he rose up against his brother and slew him. But to arrive at that point where he can kill his brother, he has to go through a series, I'm quite sure, of mental gymnastics. Well, he's, you know, technically, he's technically he's my brother. But he's really other. Mm-hmm. I mean, enemy. I mean, it has to be done. I mean, I need this field. And I can't have his sheep, you know, going across my farm. Right. It, it just, it has to be done. And so he lies to himself about it. Then he lies to God about it. Um... You know, where is your brother? Oh, I don't. I have. I would have no idea. Am I my brother's keeper? Mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, am I supposed to take care of him like he takes care of his sheep? You know. By now, I hope we have the answer. But that's his uh, original dodge. And the end of the story is that Cain is exiled, moves east of Eden, and we're told he founds the first city. What's the Bible saying here? The Bible is saying that our societies are basically formed around. Othering others to the extent that they're called enemy and justifying our violence toward them. And that's how we cohere as a society. But Jesus comes to bear witness to the truth and say, you know what? There's a completely other way of being human. And it's based in love. It's based in forgiveness. It's based in mutuality. It's based in recognizing that every other person truly is brother and sister. Right. And so and Jesus calls us to that. But it's it's it really lies at the heart of the most r- radical demanding ethic of following Jesus.
0: And I think you see that in a lot of conflicts like the Middle East right now. Uh I mean you talked about that in some of your book. That was 10 years ago. You still I'm, see that happening now and and it's it's all of this us versus them thing in the Middle East right now. And and you just wonder, you know, how will this end and it it's forgiveness is the answer, but it's
1: I, the only answer you know, I have. It, yeah, I mean, you know, there's the chapter in the book, which I, I'm borrowing from Desmond Tutu. Without forgiveness, there is no future. Right. Uh, I mean, without forgiveness, we just we just stay stuck in the same cycle of violence and retaliation and violence and retaliation. The yeah. only way, the only future possible, is open through the door of forgiveness. Yeah
0: one of the biggest us versus them things that that happens right now uh, happens every 2 years every 4 years yeah. is politics uh, and this is terrible
1: yeah. this is terrible jeremy it's it, it's awful and i'm i what's happened yeah. is i know you should ask the yeah. question I'll, yeah. I'll be quiet here. <laughs> but but uh, i'm worked up now yeah and and
0: you you say in there the condition of the human heart is why the world can never be changed by politics alone i for me i'm i've become so disenfranchised by politics myself uh, but why do so many people, and, and even a lo- lot of Christians, I mean, I see Christians on Facebook, I talk to Christians, mm-hmm. and and it's it's not just Democrats, it's not just Republicans, right. it's both right. sides. Yeah. Yeah. And they tend to put so much more trust in the government and world leaders
1: than in God. Well, what they've done is they've brought religious conviction and devotion to their politics. Right. Which seems to indicate that their faith in God is actually lacking. Right. That for all the talk about faith in God, in God we trust, they don't really trust God, mm-hmm. and they you know we need we must take matters into our own hands, and we must control Caesar's sword. and And I'm I'm actually very concerning politics. You know the nature of politics; it's the art of compromise, it's give and take, mm-hmm. and you together work for the common good. Right. But if you reach the point where your uh, your political opponent is an absolute enemy in a winner take- all give no quarter blood sport you are sowing the seeds for civil war right and I, we need to pull back from that brink and the church needs to lead the way now I know I sound like a fool even talking like that but I don't what am what am I supposed to say yeah you know the way of let's you know and when jesus was counseling the way of turning the other cheek and not resisting with violence those that are violent and loving your enemy let's remember he wasn't doing this in the context of a nice easy life in suburbia right somewhere in scandinavia he was a member of a people that were occupied by the brutal roman empire um uh, you know <laughs> I've, I've had people tell me when when i when I urge, um, you know, radical forgiveness, they say, "Oh, that's you're you're saying that from a position of privilege." I say, "Well, that may be the case, but I learned it from someone who wasn't right." Yeah. <laughs> that's Jesus. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not,
0: not only from the Roman authorities, it's always the, I also mean, the Jewish I mean, he goes leader. to the
1: cross, come on now, yeah. and
0: on the cross says, Father, forgive them. Yeah, the, the Jewish authorities were also against him, so he had the Romans from one side, the Jewish
1: well, authorities. Well, this this yeah. is the thing, that Jesus refused to join any of the political movements of his day. Right. He, he wasn't a zealot advocating violent revolution against the Romans. He wasn't a Pharisee, although he probably had closer affinity with them than any other group. He wasn't uh, he wasn't one of the Herodians or the Sadducees. That is kind of the uh, the social elite of Jerusalem. He wasn't an Essene. That's just going to say, well, you know, I'm just going to retreat off into the desert and be a hermit monk and do my own thing. Uh, Jesus was n- he joined none of those, and I think it's very interesting, Jeremy, that. In his among his 12 disciples, he has a zealot. Mm-hmm. And, and these are people that were advocating violent, armed insurrection against the Roman occupiers right. and a tax collector. <laughs> yeah. Tax collectors were the ones that were colluding with the Romans and getting rich by doing. These two would be mortal enemies. They would be at polar opposites of the social-political spectrum of A.D., the first century a.d. in galilee and jesus i want you and you (laughs) yeah i call both of you i mean what a testimony that is so
0: kind of the the last thing i want to talk about in the book it kind of kind of leads to this you talk about jesus going to the cross and i'll just remember one day i was sitting in church and, and it just hit me uh when i was a little bit younger i i don't know if it was around easter or if it was during the easter season and I was just sitting there and I thought, you know, we talked about how Jesus died for our sins and and that that was ingrained in me from the time I was young. But it just one day I just thought not only he died for my sins, but he died for the very sins that put him there on the cross. Yeah. And he forgave those people that put him there on the cross and forgave them right there. And... And, and it's just to me, and and you talked about it in the book that the cross is so central to being able
1: to forgive. Just talk about that for mm. a moment. Talk about it for a moment. My or, goodness, I got or as much pretty, as you want, I have to figure where to start here. <laughs> There's so many ways to think about the cross. I'm not here to plug a new book, but I have a new book coming out in February called "The Wood Between the Worlds." It's it's a book on the cross. Yeah, and it's. Nineteen chapters and a long poem. <laughs> and these are 19 different ways of looking at the cross. I think one of the biggest mistakes we've made in atonement theory is to try to reduce the meaning of the cross to one thing. Yeah, I think it's, it's a terrible mistake. Uh, so I give you 19 ways of looking at the cross, and I don't mean to suggest that I've come anywhere near to exhausting mm-hmm. the interpreted meaning of the cross. Um, But if we're talking about forgiveness, one way of talking about it is that on Good Friday, the sin of the world, I mean, just all of it, I mean, just all the violence, the oppression, the deceit, all of that coalesces into a hideous singularity so that it becomes one thing, right? It, it, It becomes, the sins of the world become the sin of the world. And the apex of the sin of the world is the greatest crime possible, the murder of God, right. theicide. And as as the sin of the world coalesces into a hideous singularity and with violence is sinned into the body of Jesus, his response is, "Father, forgive them." And he he's he's absorbing it. He's he's taking it into himself and transforming it into forgiving love. And by the way. When the Son prays, Father, forgive them, I'm going do a little theology here. The Son is not acting as an agent of change upon the Father. Uh, Orthodox theology always teaches that the Father is immutable. He doesn't change rather what the son does is reveal the father. That's why Jesus mm-hmm. says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. The father and I are one. I only see what I, I only say what the father says, I only do what the father does. So when Jesus says, "Father, forgive them," mm-hmm. he's revealing to the world that the heart of the father is one of forgiveness. Yeah. And so that's what happens in a I don't know what word to use, a cosmic, universal way at the cross. That the sin of the world is dealt with by forgiveness with God in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, Paul says. But it also stands as an enduring model that we are to follow. You know, it's 2,000 years later, we read passages in the Gospels, which are central passages, where Jesus called to discipleship is take up your cross and follow me. And it's almost impossible for us not to hear that in some religious way. Mm -hmm. But try to take all that. You understand that when Jesus uttered those words, the cross had no religious meaning. It was this abhorrent instrument that Romans used to crucify rebellious slaves and revolutionaries. And that, it, would have been a, it would have been really a whole, almost a... It's like, I don't know how you're going to get a movement together with that kind of invitation, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> but he did because of resurrection. Uh, but that is, an, that is an implicit invitation to martyrdom. That Jesus says, we are going to go into the world as a nonviolent, forgiving band of followers of Yahweh. And there is a distinct possibility that violence will come your way because violence cannot tolerate the presence of one who owes it nothing. To quote Rene Girard, uh, so you might as well you're saying, Hey, hey, I brought my own cross with me. So if you want to nail me to it, I saved you the trouble of finding one. Here yep. it is. But th- I'm going to follow the way of Jesus no matter what you do. Yeah. And so that a thousand or twelve hundred years later the cross ends up put on the shields of crusaders just shows you how far off we can get. I mean, that's that's the very antithesis of the meaning of the cross. Yeah. So the last
0: thing I want to ask you is, if you could leave our listeners with one takeaway from our conversation, what would it be?
1: That the way of Jesus is not easy, but it is possible And it is the way that leads to life. It's narrow. And it's strenuous. But it's possible. And it's worth it. And it's the only way that ultimately leads to life. Everything else is just a way that leads to death.
0: Well, I want to thank you for your time. I appreciate this. This was great. uh, Really great insights into forgiveness. Uh, I hope our listeners really take some of this to heart uh, and uh, think about how we can be uh, forgive and really radically forgive others. Um, I know there's some, some things I want to share in the show notes. Uh, want to share information about your books, uh, upcoming books too. I know you aren't here to plug it, but I do want to, want to share any information on how they can uh, find your books, uh, share information about Word of Life Church as well, and, uh, just any other information you want to share with them. So I'll put any of that in the show notes as well. All right. Thank you, Jeremy. So, uh, but, uh, We'll have all of that information there uh, for everyone. And But uh, once again, I just want to thank you for your time. Thank you.